Are you sick of mansplaining? We are too. Now <laughs> it's time, time for us to girls play. <laughs> Every time. So awkward. Oh my God. We love a cheesy um, intro. <laughs> this voice you're hearing is Jodie. And this voice is Ali. And today we're talking about coercive control. But before we get into that, just a quick thank you to all of our first time listeners who listened yeah. to our first podcast. We were so, I was so emotional. I was like, oh my goodness, we have people listening from all over the world already, which is a little bit wild. It's so wild. I yeah. did not expect it at all. Yeah. Um, I think to us, like, we were really just happy if literally one person listened to this. So the fact that there are a bunch of people. is shocking. Is, yeah. And from, like, genuinely all over the world. So hello to our listeners in Belgium. Yeah. And Germany. And Puerto Rico. Yeah, so random. And America. And Sydney. And Canberra. And Melbourne. And Tasmania. Whoa, Tasmania. I made that up. Uh, well, I'm hopefully by this time there will be a listener in Tasmania. Yeah, so let's get into it. Let's get into it. So as Jodes mentioned, this episode we will be talking about coercive control, which is definitely a very serious issue. It's one that I know that we're both really passionate about, but I think also we want to preface before we get into talking about the topic that, of course, this is a legal issue as well. This is now a crime in all of Australia, Jodes. Not your... even close, but no. we'll get to, <laughs> we will, we will we'll get get to, to that. that later. Yep. But yeah, so... We're not experts on the subject. This no. is not legal advice. This no. is just us talking, drawing together some of the research and some of the sort of key ideas on this topic and giving them to you. Yeah. Let's dive right in. Yeah, let's go for it. So coercive control is a pattern of abuse that degrades, humiliates and isolates its victims. This is a form of non-physical violence and is the unseen side of domestic violence and abuse that aims to take away a person's freedom and autonomy to make their own decisions. This pattern of behaviour is harder to identify than other types of abuse and generally involves manipulation and isolation to ensure the victim's dependence on the abuser. So just a disclaimer, coercive control can be experienced by either women or men. So that means men can coercively control women, women can coercively control men, men can coercively control other men, and women can coercively control other women. But the studies have indicated, including a 2021 policy brief by the Australian National Research Organisation for Women's Safety, is that coercive control is entrenched in gender inequality and overwhelmingly perpetrated by men towards women. So when we talk about perpetrators in this episode, we will be focusing on the idea that it is men, but we do want to acknowledge that it's not just men that do this. But that is just our little disclaimer going forward. It's also important to note that controlling behaviours by an intimate partner are experienced disproportionately. Some women are overrepresented, including those who are First Nations people, people with disabilities, those with insecure visas, young people and those in remote and regional areas. And just a friendly reminder that all of our sources will be down below. Mm. We won't be citing everything, but check the show notes. So I think one thing about domestic abuse, and when we say domestic abuse, we will be referring to it as a way of talking about coercive control. Obviously, coercive control doesn't just happen in, you know, intimate partnerships, but for this episode, that's sort of what we'll be focusing on, sort of like intimate partner coercive control. And honestly, one thing that when this is talked about, I think people sort of think, how can this happen? Like, how how could a smart woman be coercively controlled, you know? I think there's this sort of misconception that it's just sort of like vulnerable people that are coercively controlled, but mm. it's not. And I think that's very much the 
the reason why coercive control is also such a dangerous thing because it puts, which I mean, we will speak about this like in depth throughout the episode, but just like quickly on like a surface level, it is an element of domestic abuse that isolates the victim and makes it feel almost impossible for them to leave yeah. and for them to even recognise the fact that that is a form of domestic abuse. Yeah, for if, sure. you know, physical and sexual violence aren't other elements of what they're experiencing. Yeah, for sure. So I think one thing I'd like to point out is, you know, while politicians condemn, you know, violence against women, um, there's, you know, campaigns on it in Australia, across the world, you know, the UN has a whole task force focused on gender violence. Obviously, coercive control has sort of made its way into public discourse in Australia and, you know, across the world. I think often they're sidestepping the root issue, which is that social entitlement is what drives some men to assert control, a belief inherent in the patriarchy that men abuse women. And I'm quoting Jess Hill's 2019 book, See What You Made Me Do, because society tells them that they're entitled to succeed. You know, the abuse comes because they're afraid they won't get the girl, they won't get the money, they will be vulnerable to the violence and control of other men. It says that if they fail to assert themselves like real men, then they'll end up poor and alone. So it's sort of linking the idea that they know the violence isn't okay, but it's a necessary condition sometimes. And I mean, look at Andrew Tate. Well, even, I mean, I mentioned this to you before I went to see a preview screening of Priscilla last night, the Sofia Coppola film. Oh, how was it? Um, I loved it. I thought it was really brilliant. But it was very interesting to see these signs of coercive control being played out in front of me while they were in the forefront of my mind yeah you know seeing him throw a chair at Priscilla and then instantly say oh I'm so sorry yeah okay you know and it's like exactly what you're talking about and very much in this instance it wasn't that these acts of violence or acts of controlling nature were done with malice they were a way for him to exercise control over her. Yeah. Okay. And my friend said to me while we were watching the movie, she was like, do you think he really loved her? And then and that she said that at the beginning of the movie. And then as I watched the movie, it was like playing through my head the whole time because I do think abusive relationships like that are so complex in that someone can love someone but also love the control more. Yeah. Or even really that the control becomes like embroiled in the way that they love which is so dangerous I think so and I think one thing that sort of tying into that sort of movie idea is Mm. you know women are conditioned just by watching Hollywood films Mm. to believe that men being controlling but really it's assertive is attractive and men fighting for them is attractive men protecting them is attractive Mm. but some of those things are really oppression and I think that might be sort of what totally, you're describing totally, there. Totally, exactly. And also some of those behaviours start off as being protective, but they they progress. Totally. And when they do, it's kind of too late and it's already coercive control, right? And I think one thing is like confronting the pervasive norm sort of proves more challenging than preventing violence itself, you know, preventing this idea that men are entitled to, uh, you know, act a certain way, right? Mm. Is more difficult than actually like combating the violence. Mm or combating the coercive control. And really that's what we've got to do before the violence or the coercive control stops. Like it's based on the idea of the patriarchy. Okay, so we've spoken a little bit about the concept of coercive control. I think it's important that we identify some of the key signs. Yeah, let's go for it. These can be signs coercive control may be happening or, you know, 
you could just be experiencing the poor individual behaviours of some person which is unrelated to something bigger like coercive control or they could be individual elements of the coercively controlling behaviour. If someone's gaslighting you, it doesn't mean they're necessarily coercively controlling you. However... It can be. It can very well be. coercive control, for sure. We also want to note before we get into this that this is by no means an exhaustive list. There are a plethora of ways that a perpetrator may exercise coercive control. These are simply some of the most common and some of the ones that we thought would be important to identify in this conversation. So starting with potentially one of the most discussed signs, I'd say, in current like social conversation is love bombing. I can easily say a lot of people I know have experienced love bombing yeah. in some context. And again, that doesn't necessarily mean that every like, instance was coercive yeah, control. Completely. But it's a really good early sign, I suppose, that something like this may be happening. So love bombing, as defined by a paper written by students from the University of Arkansas, is identified as the presence of excessive communication, specifically around feelings of love and romantic connection, at the beginning of a romantic relationship in order to obtain power and control over another's life. This is, I think, something that we see a lot happen. Saying I love you very early on, being excessively overly romantic in a way that is not just like a sweet and genuine Thing, it is yeah. it's over and above what you should expect from a healthy progression of a relationship that makes sense because I think that's important a relationship that moves too quickly especially when there's like upfront <laughs> Jodie's looking at me with her eyebrows raised because that's definitely something sometimes that it's a red flag <laughs> totally. if they're too nice um, maybe they're just too nice yeah and like I definitely like I've absolutely fallen for love bombing I've copped it quite a bit And I think for me, at least, when I see someone being romantic and sweet, because that's something I may not have experienced before, I think that's really beautiful. And, oh, this person must really care about me. A genuine loving person rather than like someone trying to assert control and, you know. Yeah. Sometimes, I mean, it probably is someone falling in love quickly and thinking that it is, you know, love maybe being misguided. And Mm. so if it's in a really quick way or expressing it in a way that may make the other person feel either incredibly loved or by proxy incredibly sort of uncomfortable because Mm. sometimes those two go hand in hand. Totally. The National Domestic Violence Hotline in America noted that love bombing can take place at any time during a relationship, but it is more prevalent in the early stages, which makes sense because if you, you know, make someone feel comfortable and that they're loved and you're the kind of partner that can provide that feeling, mm. then you're more likely to sort of be able to stay together because totally. that could be what someone is looking for. And especially when a lot of people, just because of the nature of society, get a lot of validation from relationships. Mm. Not everyone, obviously, mm. but it is a nice way to feel loved and validated. So, It's interesting though, I do think it's important to note that it can take place at any time in a relationship yeah. because I also think, and from my own personal experience, that love bombing is also used after other elements of coercive control as a way to mask the fact that that may have happened. So yeah, after like, right. after a you know, a jealous outburst or maybe something that's particularly aggressive, maybe not physical aggression, but, you know, a threat or something like that, you might be, flowers might be bought for you. Oh, but I love you. Like, I I love you. Exactly. Because it's used to make you feel loved and make you feel like that was out of character. Yeah. And the love is the reoccurring sort of theme of the relationship. Totally. Yeah. Exactly. The next 
sign, which I think is a really important hallmark of coercive control, is isolation, being isolation from family and loved ones. This is a complex expression of control and dominance that cuts off the victim from their support networks, which allows the abuse to go unchecked. When you have your partner in particular, if we're talking about, you know, romantic contexts, alienating you from your friends and family who you would normally go to for support, you lose that infrastructure that you have in place, that sounding board for when things are going amiss. And I think often that's why coercive control can go on for so long because... Other people aren't there to recognise the red flags that you may miss. Totally, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Monitoring activity is another sign of coercive control. This can also evolve into stalking and harassing. This can involve being physically followed or use of technology to track your location, keep tabs on you, excessive calls or texts with demands for you to answer immediately, you know, reading someone's text or emails with the intention to determine what your relationships are and to be able to like exercise control over those. And then also monitoring a person's location. For example, if you have something like Find Friends or Snapchat Maps, using that as a way to keep tabs on where you are in another effort to maintain control. That's really interesting. Mm. Another one is denying freedom and autonomy. You know, that can be controlling someone, what they sort of do with their lives. One example I read in the book, See What You Made Me Do by Jess Hill, great book, was that when a a, a woman got a job, a full-time job, and instead of the husband working, she had to sort of go into the workforce and support the family mm. because he was incapable at the time. Mm. That was something that he just couldn't cope with. So it's sort of denying someone opportunity to make their own choices and their own determination about their life path and, you know, even more readily, just the small everyday choices of what coffee are you going to buy? Name-calling, severe criticism, degradation and humiliation, I think those all are kind of encompassed under the same umbrella. These are meant to degrade the victim's self-worth and, again, motivated by a desire to control, demean and erode their confidence. Uh, Controlling of finances and limiting access to money, I think a hallmark sign of coercive control can be having a single bank account in Mm. which the woman uh, is denied access to. Mm. So that's another reason that women find it really difficult to leave if they don't have any financial support. I know we have in Australia the, you know, domestic violence one-off payment for women leaving Mm, a a violent home. I'm not quite sure if coercive control falls into that, but it's really hard to leave if you don't have access to money. And, you know, it's definitely something that might make you stay. One thing that I think is really interesting and maybe not so relevant for our generation, perhaps, Mm. although it may be so, Mm. um, I know it's definitely not in my house, um, but being coerced to take care of sort of all the domestic duties, you know, cooking, cleaning, and that's another way of oppression. I actually have a story about this. I was going to talk about it later, but I feel like it's relevant now and I feel like I should bring it up. Yeah, go for Um, it. I had a past experience where I was coerced, pressured, I can't think of the exact word to use, but I would do his laundry for him. Okay. I would, but... Not only would I do his laundry for him, I should I should provide more context. I'll discuss it later, but this was a, a situation where I was experiencing coercive control and he lived quite far away from me. It took me about an hour and a half to get to where he lived on public transport. Okay. I would take his washing in big plastic bags on the bus with me for an hour and a half home. I would do his laundry at my house. I would then take it back to his house on public transport for an hour and a half. And then when I got to his house, he would say, are you not going to make the bed for me? Oh my gosh. 
If you could see my face right now, it's shocked. And I'm weirdly getting emotional speaking about that. I've spoken about that a lot because that was one of the first things I kind of identified as being a little ridiculous. A little. It's kind of not the mm, right term. mm. And again, on its own, that's like one instance. But then when you look at the rest of the context that surrounded it, it is another way that control was being exercised over me and that I was made to feel less than, yeah. And it's one of those things where, like, that's such a loving act that you've done. Totally. You know? Yeah. It it was such a loving thing that was sort of taken advantage of. Yeah. But also on its own might not wholeheartedly be seen as a sign. Totally. You know what I mean? Totally. On its own, just doing someone's laundry. I mean, I wouldn't do it. You're a better person than I am. But But when you do, yeah, when you start to look at all the other instances that kind of add up, it's clear that, again, it's a sign and, like, something that people should be looking out for, which I think is important. This list is, yes, they're, like, actions of coercive control, but also ways that you can identify that it might be happening if you feel like maybe but are made to feel crazy or insecure you know and especially if you're isolated like we talked about before no one else is gonna recognize these red flags right totally just sort of on that domestic duties topic though it's sort of one way that gender roles are continuously Mm. enforced totally if you're made to cook and clean you know and look after the kids and you know participate in the care economy by looking after you know someone's relative Mm. because that's what is expected Mm. of you because you're being controlled to do so you're not going to gain financial autonomy. And this is just one thing that can sort of contribute to that cycle of, you know, women being oppressed. Mm, For sure. Some other signs are controlling aspects of your health and body. This can include monitoring what you eat, sleep and exercise, and how you access medical help and also what kind of medications you're taking. Also sexual coercion, which we will probably talk about a little bit more in another episode that's a little more dedicated to the idea of consent, but an important one to note in this conversation for sure, because I think that's where the lines start to get a little bit blurry between coercive control and physical and sexual violence in a relationship as well. for sure. But in this instance, this refers to being coerced into sex. So whether that is someone repeatedly asking you, even though you've said no multiple times, until you say yes, or suggesting that because you're in a relationship they're entitled to sex from you and so it feels like a consensual experience even though it's not when we start to break down the more complex ideas about what consent actually means yeah threats Mm. uh, that can be you know threats of self-harm or suicide as a means of control um threatening to make false police reports um and sort of flipping the head on the women to make them feel like they're actually the one that's doing the wrong thing. Mm. Threatening damage to a person's reputation or threatening to disclose information about a person's sexuality, gender identity, body or HIV status, which is a very common thing in homosexual relationships or relationships that don't fit into the heterosexual norm. And of course, gaslighting, which similar to love bombing is something that's definitely spoken about a lot in pop culture and, you know, social media discourse. And, you know, to break that down into really like digestible terms, that's the idea of being told that something that you know to be true isn't true and having your belief system essentially broken down by a person that you trust. So I think you've got the signs and now we should go into the lore Mm. around coercive control. I think there is some sort of misapprehension with putting in place coercive control laws. I think because in and of themselves, these behaviours don't often seem like something that is 
a crime. Mm. You know, isolating you from your family is a horrible thing to do, mm. but alone, that's mm. actually not a crime. Mm. Totally. You know what I mean? These things make you a bad person if you do them, yeah. but they don't necessarily make you a criminal, which is why I think there has been some challenges and difficulty with um, criminalizing coercive control and also enforcing any criminalization that yeah. has occurred? I think it's, I mean, all forms of domestic abuse are difficult ones to, difficult laws to enforce because the lines are so blurry, which is the unfortunate reality. And, you know, I wish I could say that that's untrue, but especially when it comes to emotional abuse and psychological abuse and then we come into coercive control, these are things that there's not concrete hallmarks of. You can't go to a doctor and there's a bruise on your arm. Yeah. A, lo- a lot of women that have experienced coercive control often say things like, you know, I wish they just hit me mm. so I could go to the police. Mm. I actually read a really interesting statistic about this. Um, it was from a study conducted by the Australian Institute of Criminology. Uh, and they found that one third of women in this study who had experienced coercive control did not seek help from any resources, which is a horrible statistic, but also seems... No, it makes sense. It makes sense for sure, right? But then when they started to look at more broadly the experience of um, domestic abuse, only one in four didn't seek help if they had experienced coercive control and physical violence. Yeah. Well, because a lot of the time I think people don't know what coercive control is, right? Mm. Mm. Like it it, it makes sense to go and seek help if someone hits you. I mean, there's a whole reason. Mm. There's reasons, incredible reasons why you might not. Mm. But a lot of the time people don't realise that coercive control is abuse. For sure. Well, then in comparison, 51% of women who had experienced just coercive control alone didn't seek help. So half women that experienced it didn't seek any form of help. That's not just like legal support. That's also psychological support or any form of you know resource that might provide them support. So you can really see the, the disproportionate levels that women and or not just women, all victims of coercive control, but in this study, it was specifically women are not only, you know, having legal support, but also having any form of support for these things that do have long-lasting psychological impacts. One thing that's probably worth noting is that a lot of the time these women love these men, Mm. you know. Women that experience coercive control love their partner. You know, they're not always coercively controlling or demonstrating coercively controlling behaviours. They're also sometimes loving and kind and caring and compassionate and your life partner Mm. you know when you fell in love with them there's a good chance they might not have been coercively controlling Mm. so it makes sense that women don't often seek help because they haven't been hit they haven't made the connection yet that they are being abused for sure right yeah and on that I mean seeking legal help and seeking help from a a psychologist or a professional or even a hotline are two different things and a lot of the time seeking legal help isn't always possible uh, because although the national plan to end family and domestic violence in Australia, which is sort of the policy the um, federal government is using to sort of guide their legislation around issues of gendered violence, while the plan does recognise the severity of the impact of coercive control in Australia, the laws that seek to address it are either sort of not in force or non-existent Mm. yet. The only exception to that is Tasmania, which has recognised it as a criminal fence since 2004. Interesting. Yeah, so Tasmania might be a good place to live. Mm. So proposed legislative amendments around Australia are seeking to make coercive control a criminal offence. There's changes in Queensland and New South Wales afoot, 
For example, in Queensland, there was a bill introduced to Parliament in October of 2023. It hasn't passed yet. And in New South Wales, a bill has passed which will uh, criminalise coercive control from July 2024. So that means when a person uses abusive behaviours towards a current or former intimate partner with the intention to coerce or control them, it will be considered a criminal offence. But like a lot of other issues of gender-based violence, such as you know sexual assault or anything in that realm, it's often quite difficult to prosecute. Mm, for sure. So that might be a very likely issue that you know women in New South Wales will face even when this is legalised. Yeah. In New South Wales, the criminal offence will capture repeated patterns of physical or non-physical abuse that hurt, scare, intimidate, threaten or control someone. And the law will only apply to abusive behaviour that happens after it starts, which is July 2024. Mm. Which, as much as... Of course, having these laws in place is really important. It is, I can imagine, and, you know, for myself as someone that's experienced coercive control, it's incredibly frustrating to know that something you've experienced is now a crime and a criminal offence, but that the things you've experienced you may not be able to get justice for because they weren't a crime at the time that you experienced them. And of course, that's just the reality of how the legal system works. But it definitely, I can imagine, be really disheartening. I know for myself, it's quite disheartening to know that as much as it is very optimistic for the future, for those people that, you know, have experienced it and have been healing from that and think potentially there's, you know, hope for them to get justice, they can't. Yeah. I don't have anything to say to that. It's the harsh reality, right? Yeah, for sure. That really sucks. But as I said, you know, it's not all around Australia. Mm. Those are just a few states that are seeking to make these moves. I know other countries are speaking about the legislation. America has some sort of plan in progress. I believe it has been legislated in the UK. Coercive control is criminalised. But yeah, there's still so much work to be done, Mm -hmm. you know. I'm hopeful that, you know, changes will happen and the law will adequately respond to instances of coercive control, but I suppose we'll have to see what happens in New South Wales and and then reflect on it. Totally. So, as we mentioned in our first episode, we think it's important where possible to bring our own experiences and stories to the topics that we talk about because they provide a sense of relatability. And as mentioned previously, coercive control is something that I have experienced in the past and coming into this episode... It's, of course, something that I'm really passionate about, but also something I was very, very nervous to talk about. And, you know, that that's something that I'm still processing and healing from. But I do think it's important to talk to some of my experiences because I was definitely somebody that was experiencing this form of abuse and actually didn't realise it was happening until after I was removed from that situation because I had been isolated from my friends and family in that instance. Makes sense. So, for example, uh, and I think this is important to talk to the way that isolation can occur because, you know, we spoke about it in kind of loose terms, but this is like an actuality of how I experienced it. Mm. Anytime I had an argument with this person, the first thing he would say was, don't tell your mum about this. She already doesn't like me. Oh, my gosh. And if you tell her about this, that'll make her not like me more. And I I knew that my mum had some frustrations towards some of this person's behaviour. So I was already nervous. And so that definitely 
prevented me from talking to her about a lot of things. And your mom's opinion means so much to you. You know, you don't want yeah. her to dislike yeah. the person that you love. Yeah. I mean, and you know, you know this, Jodes, my mom is one of the most important people in my life. I have never kept things from my mom. I felt like in a sense I had been dishonest with her when the issue was a lot more complex. And obviously, you know, she was very understanding and, you know, that didn't hinder our relationship. But in the when I was in the situation with this person, I was made to feel that if I did express it to her, that would cause a rift between not only him and I, but also my relationship with my mom. And I think that is completely characteristic of coercive control. It's also shifting the blame from him to you, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. It means that the problem is actually you telling your mom. Yeah. It's not him exercising these behaviours, which are clearly the wrong thing. And I think this is one of those scenarios where he actually knew totally. it was the wrong thing. Totally. A lot of coercive control happens and the man doesn't even sort of cotton on that it's a problem but it's clear he was very self-aware of his behavior and I'm sorry he had to experience that that also wasn't the only relationship that he caused issues with and you know isolated me from at this point in time I also didn't have a lot of friends this was you know post high school and I had some friends Jodie and I were friends but also I didn't I like didn't see you for like two years it's like the growing pains of when you finish school and you know you'd finish before me and one of my closest friends at the time, because he and this friend also had a bit of a complicated relationship that had always made me feel very insecure, this is also something that he exploited in order to isolate me from her and prevent me from getting support from genuinely the only other person. Like at this point in my life, it was kind of my mom and this friend yeah. and they were the people that I spoke to. Again, any time that he would exercise some form of problematic behaviour, whether that was controlling behaviour or otherwise. He would say to me, I mean, he used the name Sally. That wasn't her name, but we'll replace her name with Sally for now. He would say to me, speak to Sally about it. She'll tell you that you're crazy. She'll tell you that this is what happens in relationships. Oh, my gosh. And so I can't talk to my mom about these things because she'll not like him. And I love him, so I don't want that to happen. But then I can't tell Sally about these things because I'll be crazy. Yeah, that's and, very and, isolating. Yeah, and I'm I'm the insecure one, you know, which I think, you know, when you look at these behaviours that are eroding the victims, not only their support networks but also their own confidence and also their own sanity to some extent yeah. and their own, like, belief in themselves and what they know to be true, which is where things like gaslighting come into play because when you stop believing what you know to be true – how can you walk away from a situation like that? You know, and how do you even know? Like for me, I didn't realise that the word coercive control didn't come up till I was in therapy. I'd mentioned to my friend after, you know, I wasn't in that situation anymore. Um, and she had said, Ali, this is not okay. Like she had said, you know, this is manipulative, this is emotionally abusive. Yeah. And then when I was in therapy, my therapist brought up the term coercive control and that was where I first started to understand what that meant and what that looked like I think before this was a topic in the public discourse Mm -hmm. it wasn't something that was well known I mean gaslighting on its own was really well known totally and you could easily identify when you were being gaslit unless you really believed it which is obviously the point of gaslighting and love bombing even but as a whole these instances of coercive control weren't kind of identified so it makes sense that you didn't yeah notice them and I don't think you should feel bad about that or yeah and that's something I've had to really 
grapple with and I, you know, at the beginning we spoke about how do women that are, you know, intelligent and independent end up in these situations? Because I said that to myself all the time, you know, it didn't align with the view that I had of myself, which was really difficult. But then when you do, you know, you look at the conditions that led to me feeling that way, it makes sense. Complete sense. And I think so many people in your position would have had the same experience, right? And I think, you know, with physical violence, we know it's wrong. Mm. It's in the law. Mm. You know, you can easily point to that and say it's a crime. Mm. I know that something's happening and I can get help. I mean, obviously there's barriers to doing so, but with coercive control, a lot of men just think that these are signs of bad manners Mm. or, you know, just someone with a whole bunch of fatal flaws. Mm. Maybe we should talk about the impacts. Yeah, let's let's do it. Mm. I think it's worth mentioning that the effects of coercive control aren't just in the moment. You know, it's not just those signs of gaslighting, those individual experiences. It has a long-term effect. Mm. And one of the things that it's probably worth mentioning is the New South Wales Domestic Violence Death Review Team found that 97% of intimate partner violence homicide cases, the victim had experienced coercive controlling behaviours before being killed. For a lot of men, these coercive controlling behaviours might not eventuate in killing your partner but they're they're red flags that are likely to escalate whether that be to domestic violence or homicide Mm -hmm. and by that point it is just too late for the man to be held accountable or for the woman to get help Mm -hmm. I like I'm speechless I don't even know what to (laughs) to add to that there's been so many news cases last year alone I think the statistic for last year was 63 women Mm. in Australia were killed by a partner or former partner and in some countries that statistic Mm. is so much higher yeah Yeah. you know it's led to a lot of change I don't think we would have had the legislative change if this hadn't happened but it's so awful that something like that has to happen for for people to realize that oh actually these behaviors are not right totally Coercive control is almost always an underpinning of domestic and family violence. Um, I was reading an article by the ABC. um, Annabelle Daniel, the chief executive of the Women's Community Shelter, said that coercive control is actually the framework that sits behind just about Mm. all domestic and family violence. It's actually the toolbox and the different kinds of abuse are just the tools. Mm. I think one problem as well with coercive control is because these behaviours are just on their own behaviours. The reporting around it isn't good. Mm. Um, the widespread national reporting on coercive control is sort of limited and it's it's a big information gap, mm. you know. Someone sure. can easily identify when they've been physically abused. You've yep. got some sign, as we said before, a bruise or a black eye or yep. there's things that your family can see, yep. you know, physical signs, but for coercive control it's not. So there is an information gap and, you know, a reporting gap because as you experience, mm. people don't even know what's happening to themselves. Mm. And I think also... Because of the flawed system that we have and I think people that have experienced are very aware of how flawed the system is and so there's also a hesitancy to report because they don't feel that it will eventuate in anything except more stress for them. Yeah, that makes sense. Which is obviously, you know, we see that with sexual violence reporting as well. The negative sides of reporting almost outweigh the positive side because they recognise that there may not be a chance of it eventuating anywhere. Especially when, I mean, in Australia, it's only law in Tasmania that mm. coercive control is a crime yeah. right now. Yeah. You can't really do anything. Yeah. From what I can see, I 
mean maybe an AVO. Mm. As you mentioned, most of the impacts of coercive control are something that happens in the long term. And the problem with something like coercive control is that it affects a person in every aspect of their life. Well, it can. It may not necessarily, but it can. It can affect a person's employment. It can affect their health. It can affect their relationships. It can affect their education and also their financial security. And this can cause incredibly detrimental impacts on a person's mental health, obviously, which has both short-term and long-term effects. You know, you're directly impacting someone's sense of safety and security because this is a person that they care about and feel safe with, but they're in reality not safe with this person. It's not uncommon to develop symptoms of PTSD um, and, you know, develop hypervigilant behaviour. It can also really impact a sense of what a victim believes is normal because you don't have a frame of reference for a normal or healthy relationship and the way that that should function. And so Mm. that can, you know, play out in a couple different ways in relationships. You can either end up in a cycle of finding yourself with people that are abusive in some way again, or you can become completely afraid of the idea of ever opening up to someone in an intimate capacity because, A, you don't trust your gut instincts because your gut instincts weren't right the first time that it happened. And then also, you know, again, that sense of security has been taken away. So you don't, you have a really difficult time feeling safe with someone else, especially in a romantic capacity. That makes sense. And one thing that is probably worth noting is that, you know, not everyone realises that coercive control is happening and mm. not everyone in a domestic setting leaves someone that's coercively controlling them, which yeah. when children are involved can lead to sort of a cycle mm. of belief that these behaviours are okay mm. and they're the norm in a heterosexual relationship. If you saw your parents, your your dad coercing your mum, those behaviours may seem normal to you. Mm. So... The next generation. That's really important, these like normalised patterns of abuse, both what they mean for the person experiencing it and if they do have children involved too. Completely. And I mean, we said some of these behaviours are seen on TV and they become the norm. Mm. I think normalised patterns of abuse, you know, if that is something you've experienced in your own life, whether that's through a relationship you've had personally, intimately, or, you know, through the relationships that have been demonstrated to you through your childhood, It makes it hard to determine what is normal behaviour and what is coercive control and, you know, maybe when it's time to walk away or sort of just looking at your own relationships and knowing what is okay and what's not. Totally. Totally. So as we mentioned at the beginning of this episode, coercive control is an incredibly complex issue and this is by no means an exhaustive summary either. There are a number of complexities, as Jodie mentioned, when children are involved, when, you know, entrapment and stalking are ongoing. It's an incredibly complex issue that can include so many things and we only have so much time in this podcast to discuss all of them. So we want to make sure that we are also directing you to some important resources if anything we've said resonated with you or also if you just would like to be more educated about the topic. Completely. A book I've read that really helped inform me on the ideas of coercive control as someone that's never personally experienced it was the book See What You Made Me Do by Jess Hill. She's an Australian journalist that really takes a look into the idea of coercive control in Australia and what it looks like and what it may feel like and the long-term and short-term effects of coercive control. So I definitely recommend you picking up a copy of that and having a read if you want to know more about coercive control and 
domestic and family violence, which I believe coercive control should fit into Mm. the definition of. Mm. And if you have experienced any of these things, any of these behaviours, or you feel like perhaps you are being coercively controlled or someone you know are being coercively controlled, Mm. or perhaps you are coercively controlling someone yourself, there are numerous avenues you can get free help in Australia For example, you can call 1-800-RESPECT, which is the National Family, Domestic and Sexual Violence Support Counselling Service. That's free and it's confidential. It's available 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And you can connect to 1-800-RESPECT on 1-800-RESPECT, which is 1-800-737-732. And if you want to go online, the website is www.1800respect.org.au. There is also the Sexual, Domestic and Family Violence Helpline. This is for anyone in Australia whose life has been impacted by sexual, domestic or family violence. This is also available 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And the phone number for this is 1800-943-539. And if you are a man who's concerned about your use of violence or abusive behaviour or perhaps coercive control, the men's referral service is available to you. 8 a.m. till 9 p.m. Monday to Friday and 9 a.m. and 6 p.m. Saturday to Sunday. If this is you, it would be very brave for you to take account of your behavior Mm. and call 1-300-766-491 or go online to www.ntv.org.au. And I think it's important that we end with Lifeline. This is an incredibly important resource in Australia. This is our 24-hour crisis support and suicide prevention hotline. If you are having or experiencing a personal crisis or suicidal thoughts, the number for this is 13 11 14. And if you're one of our international listeners, please go into the show notes and click the link to our expanded notes where we have a section of hotlines and crisis lines that you can use in your respective countries. Thank you so much for listening. This was definitely a serious topic. And Ali, I think it was really brave of you to speak about your own experiences. So thank you for sharing those. Thank you for listening, Jodie. I think it's really important that we have conversations like these. And I love that we have a platform where we can have those conversations and make this information accessible. And hopefully this information reached someone who needed it. Totally. Don't forget to like, subscribe and give us a review. You can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple Music, Amazon Music or wherever you like to listen. And make sure you follow us on Instagram and TikTok at Pod, Or find us online at www.girlsplainpod.com. Should we do our outro? <laughs> Three, two, it. one. I'm Jodie. I'm Ali. And, and you, you just, just got, got Girlsplained. Girlsplained.